I love mountains. When we were younger, we used to climb them in the Lake District and Wales. We even got engaged on the top of a mountain. How's that for romance? But now I find my knees creaking as I walk up the steps to the gallery. So I'm afraid that my climbing mountains days is over and I just have to watch other people doing it on television. And the thrill of the climb, the, the exhaustion of the climb too, and the thrill of the climb and the fantastic view from the tops has to come from memory, not experience. But for those three disciples in the passage that we've just heard read, their experience on the mountaintop was exhilarating, but not because of the view, but because of the transfigured view that they had there of Jesus. Let's look at it a little more closely. This event took place about a week after the incident at Caesarea Philippi, when Peter, with divinely given insight, had confessed, you are the Christ. But then when Jesus started to talk about what lay ahead, rejection, shame, suffering, the cross, Peter was the one who was rebuked very sternly by his master when he implied that this just couldn't be. Get thee behind me, Satan, said Jesus. But it was no wonder, really, that Peter and the other disciples found it so difficult. They'd been looking, waiting for a, tri a triumphal Messiah, not a suffering Christ. For them, the news that Christ was to suffer must have been unbelievable. So for Peter, James and John, the inner circle of Jesus' friends, came this amazing incident. The mount is probably Mount Hermon, 2,000 feet high, snow-peaked in places, but definitely a place of awe and wonder and majesty. And what happens to them is really indescribable in human words. Jesus, we're told, was transfigured in their presence, shining with otherworldly light. And the disciples recognized the two who were talking with him, with their master, Elijah and Moses. What that must have meant for Jesus Moses, the supreme lawgiver, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. Jesus had taken the decision to face and accept the cross, though he, more than anyone, knew it was contrary to all the popular beliefs about the Messiah. Was he right? He must have had some doubts. Was he right? Was he hearing God right on this? Here on the mountaintop, it's as though God put the seal of his approval on Jesus' decision. The greatest men of God in Jew Jewish history saw in Jesus the, 
consummation of all their hopes and expectations. And then Peter responds, as Peter so often does, to the bewildering sight. And he, in a way, he's so right in what he says, and yet so wrong. It is good. It's very good for them to be here. It's good that the disciples are here with Jesus. And probably as Peter talks about the three booths, he's thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles, symbolising God dwelling with men. But what Peter doesn't realise is that Jesus will dwell with men, but it won't be in the way that they've imagined and thought and hoped. It will be through the cross, through the glorious resurrection, and through the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's the way in which God will dwell with men. And then the cloud appears, not the mountain mist that all climbers know and fear. This cloud is the cloud of the divine presence, the cloud that had led the Israelites in the desert, the cloud that rested over the sacred ark, the cloud that filled the temple when Solomon had built it. The cloud, whenever it appeared, always said, God is here. God in awe and majesty and power. And it's out of this cloud that God speaks. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. And that word listen, it embraces not just listening with our ears, but hearing and obeying. Whatever Jesus says, they must listen and obey. Whether it be words of comfort like, come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, or hard things like, take up your cross daily and follow me. And then, in a moment, the glory had ended, and no one was there only Jesus. I love the message version of that last verse, that verse. The next moment the disciples were looking around, rubbing their eyes, seeing nothing, nothing but Jesus, only Jesus. Can I share with you just for a few moments this morning the thoughts that have come to me as I've meditated on again on this familiar yet, yet mysterious passage? Mountaintop experiences. We all have them, don't we? Not, we don't have to climb up a mountain to have them. We can have them in our Christian lives. Maybe as we worship in church. We forget all the people around us and are conscious only of God in all his glory and majesty. Perhaps the moment comes to us in prayer time, alone or with others, when God feels so close that we feel we could reach out and touch him. Maybe it comes as we watch a beautiful sunset or sit by a clear mountain stream 
or maybe as we look into the face of a newborn baby. But the moment passes. There's an old hymn. I don't think it was ever in the Methodist, in the um, Baptist book, the Green Baptist book. It is old. But it's certainly in the Methodist one, and I used to sing it quite often as a child. And it sums this up so beautifully. It says, stay, Master, stay. This is the disciples. We breathe a purer air. This life is not the life that waits us there. Thoughts, feelings, flashes, glimpses come and go. We cannot speak them. Nay, we do not know. Wrapped in this cloud of light, we seem to be the thing we fain would be, would grow eternally. Do you have moments like that? Moments when you feel so close to God. But then there's the Sunday experience and the Monday experience, and they're so different. So often I've sat in church under the Spirit's gracious influence and I've seen so clearly the life to which I'm called. It's so plain and nothing seems to stand in the way of total commitment and obedience. The Sunday vision and the Monday experience. But our Lord does know about this. He doesn't want us to stay on the mountain with him. He wants us to go down into the plain. And that there's a next verse in that hymn goes on. It says, no, says the Lord, the hour is past. We go. Our home, our life, our duties lie below. While here we kneel upon the mount of prayer, the plough lies waiting in the furrow there. Read that for the Monday morning washing. Here we sought God that we might know his will. There we must do it. Serve him, seek him still. Do you remember what confronted Jesus when he came down from the mountain? A desperate father had brought his epileptic son to the disciples for healing. But they were unable to do it. They were unable to help. I'm sure that in the crowd there were the opponents of Jesus, the helplessness of the disciples, giving great opportunity to belittle not just them, but their master. And into the middle of this argument came Jesus, from the heights to the depths, depths of human sin and pain and helplessness. And this is the wonderful thing about Jesus. He was ready to face the cross and he was ready to face everyday problems just as either came. I think it's a characteristic of being human that many of us can face the crisis moments of life with honour and dignity on the whole. But it's the little things it's the little things, the routine demands of everyday living that irritate and distract and destroy us. But not Jesus. He was able to walk the daily paths of life with God 
and the boy was healed, the critics silenced, and the disciples talked. Why does reflecting on this challenge me so deeply? I think it's because I feel that unless we find Christ continually in the everyday, we haven't really found him in the reality he wants us to find him. Unless he's as real and vital to us in the everyday experience, in the everyday rush and toil and turmoil, in the fears and anxieties and joys and sorrows, as he is in the moments of worship, then we haven't, we're missing the vital secret of the Christian life. Jesus is wonderfully able to meet us in the glory of the transfiguration on the mount, but he's also able to transform the valleys, the plains of everyday experience. And how can we do this, he do this in your life and mine? I love those words at the end of the account of the transfiguration. The disciples saw Jesus only. But that Jesus came down with them to the plain. I don't know if any of you have read a book by Thomas Kelly. Richard Foster quotes him quite a lot in the celebration of discipline that we did some time ago. But it's one of the great challenges to my spiritual life. And Thomas Kelly writes this, continually renewed immediacy not receding memory of the divine touch lies at the heart of Christian living. Shall I just say that again, because it's important, continually renewed immediacy, God, Christ, always there. Not receding memory of the divine touch lies at the heart of Christian living. To Kelly, this is possible by living our life out of what he calls the divine centre, the Christ within. We've sung it, haven't we? Jesus, be the centre. Be my light. Be my life. The very centre of our lives, of our hearts and minds. He urges a discipline of mind and heart so that the one, as soon as we're our minds are distracted, we turn immediately to him. When the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't heal the epileptic boy, his reply was that this kind demands prayer. In other words, I think he was saying, you couldn't do it because you're not living close enough to God. The practice of the presence of God isn't something set apart for the saints. It's a practice at the heart, or it should be a practice at the heart of every Christian life. It was the secret of the inner life of Christ, and it can be the secret with the inner life of his followers. Surely it was David's secret You know, as we've gone through the shepherd's detox, one of the things that has struck me 
time and time again as we've studied that the 23rd Psalm is the fact that for David, his focus was continually on his Lord, Lord with capital letters, as Simon would say. In his slaying of Goliath, everyone else in the story is thinking about Goliath. But David is thinking about God. Even in a cave, desolate and desperate, in the valley of the shadow of death, he is able to say, I will fear, fear no evil, for thou art with me. His focus is on God's power, not on his circumstances. I love David's testimony in Psalm 16, where he says, I have set the Lord always before me. That's what he did. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. How does it work? How does it work in practice? How can we come to see only Jesus in everything? How can we come to experience this continual life in his presence? Only by quiet, persistence, pra persistent practice in turning our being moment by moment, day by day, in inward surrender to Jesus, the center of our lives. But it isn't easy. You won't be surprised to know that in our house we have an awful lot of sport on the television. And you won't be surprised either to know that I'm not particularly interested in the football matches or whatever matches they are. In fact, that usually quite, I can quite easily do other things. But it always interests me when they talk about what drives athletes to achieve their very best. Yes, it's a discipline of body. They have to have fit bodies to do what they do. But it's also very much a discipline of mind. They have to learn to focus their minds in order to achieve their goal. Because just a moment's distraction can lead to heartbreaking failure. There's a word in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 30, verse 13, where Peter writes, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, just as for the, the sportsman, the, the cup, the trophy, for us, the goal is so worthwhile. Don't let your uncontrolled mind stop you reaching it. And the way that we do this will probably be different for each one of us. I just share something with you this morning that I found helpful. I found the Jesus Prayer helpful. Don't know if you've met the Jesus Prayer. There's a lot written about it in ancient literature. A simple prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. At those moments when I'm conscious that my mind could wander or worry, at the kitchen sink, waiting for the bus, awake in the night when all the worries come closing in, these words, sometimes just reduced to Lord Jesus Christ, just steady and turn the mind back to him 
and give a peace that's quite incredible. But it takes a conscious effort to do it, so that when the mind is released from the task in hand, it can fly back to him. There's another old hymn that I can remember from a child where it speaks of a mind to blend with outward things, still keeping at thy side. And that's what it does. And I often think about Paul's wise words to the church at Philippi. Do you remember them? Words we often quote. Finally, brethren, need my glasses on for this one. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And you know, that verse challenges the books I read, the television I watch. Feed our minds on the good, on the positive, and just as good, wholesome food nourishes our body, so good mind food will nourish our spirits, and we will be controlled by the giver of all things good. I hope you don't think that in concentrating on my effort, this is concentrating on my effort, not on God's grace. Can I just remind you of a little bit in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says, I'm reverberating again, to this end I labour, struggling, pull it down a bit, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. You see, Paul knew, yes, it was God's grace, but he talks about struggling. He talks about having to use his energy in order to achieve what he knew God wants of him, wanted of him. All he asks of us, I believe, is that we will surrender to him our willingness to let him transform not just the mountain peaks, but the dry plains of everyday living. And it's not easy. But if, like Peter, James and John, we claim to be his disciples, we can choose to accept his discipline, the discipline of allowing him to fill our minds, of seeing only Jesus in our day-to-day -day living. In closing, I'd just like to remind you of those words in Isaiah where he writes, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. I can remember after a walking holiday with the family in Wales, someone asked my young, one of my youngest son, who was then eight, if he'd enjoyed it. I can still remember his honest answer. He said, I liked the climbing up, but I hated the walking along. And you know, it's so true, isn't it? It's the walking along that's difficult difficult in our spiritual lives too, but it's what really counts. The ability to walk steadily forward through life, following Jesus without fainting or failing.
To do this, we have to learn the vital secret of having our strength renewed moment by moment of each new day as we learn to live continually, constantly in his presence. My prayer is that God will grant each one of us this desire, this the vision of what life could be like. And by his grace, may we be enabled not just to long for it, but to live it. Amen.